This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast this week. I have a very interesting person who I'm going to suspect that the average listener is not familiar with. His name is Mike Covell. I've, I've known Mike for a long time. We share a fascination with all things turtle, and we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit. Uh, Mike is probably best known for his book, Trend Following. It sold 100,000 plus copies. He, he goes around the world lecturing on this. Uh, he's met with some of the most successful futures traders in the world, everybody from Larry Height to Bill Dunn to John Henry to go, go through the list. It, it, it's amazing. Uh, if you're interested in commodities trading specifically or the concept of trend trading generally, this is really uh, a, a, an interesting conversation. What I found most fascinating, uh, Mike and I ha have both been completely enamored uh, by Richard Dennis's turtle experiment. And for those of you who may not be familiar with this, uh, in Jack Schwager's Market Wizards, a classic book on the art of trading and investing, uh, Richard Dennis is this brilliant commodities trader, made $80 million one year in the 80s, back when $80 million was real money, and had a debate with his partner as to whether or not great traders are born or made. And Dennis's argument was that the way they grew turtles in the turtle farms in, in the Far East is how he could train uh, traders. And so they took out an ad in a number of newspapers, brought in a bunch of uh, newbies and people with no experience or background in this and ultimately taught them to trade. And, and the turtle traders have put together a fairly spectacular track record following Dennis's instructions. And so the conclusion, by the way, the punchline to all this is they developed this debate after seeing the classic Wall Street movie Trading Places. And so the conclusion is, yes, you can train traders to follow a few specific rules, to develop discipline, to manage their losses and create fantastic traders. And and this is really a, a really interesting uh, conversation. I think you'll find it absolutely fascinating. Without any further ado, my conversation with Michael Koval. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is trader, author, and fellow podcaster, Michael Covell. You probably know him as the author of the best-selling Trend Following. He's also the author of Complete Turtle Trader, as well as three other books. Born in Quantico, Virginia, grew up in the U.S., currently residing in Saigon. Michael, welcome to Bloomberg. I want to jump into your background a little bit, because you wrote, you know, in finance, a, a decent-selling book is 10000 20000 You know, unless you're Michael Lewis, uh, you're not selling half a million copies. But trend following, which is really a very specific trading uh, uh, book, that sold hundreds of thousands of copies, didn't it? I know it sold over 100000 for sure. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a pretty cool thing. I feel very fortunate to have this fantastic strategy to write about in this cast of characters that just have changed my life for sure. So let's talk about how you found your way into this. You, you grew up, your dad was in the Navy. You grew up in Quantico. Your father was a dentist. How do you go from being, I call it an army brat, but essentially a Navy brat 
to finding your way into the world of finance. Well, he was only in the Navy for a little while, and they started private practice. I grew up in Vienna, Virginia, right outside Quantico, about mm-hmm. an hour and a half away. Uh, political science major. I mean, that's not exactly a, a prelude to writing trend following, right? Not the only political science major in the world of finance. Yeah. I have plenty others. So, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up in grad school, taking a last semester in my early to mid-20s in London. London School Economics or something unrelated? No, it was unrelated. But I was there and I, I knew, okay, I'm going back to the States. I want to figure out a way to get rich. Mm. You know, the, the, the classic, I'm going to get rich. And when I went back, I had gone to grad school at Florida State. And the only alumni that I could find that had graduated from Florida State literally was the recently retired CEO of Solomon Brothers, Jim Massey. Huh. And he was, he had just made like five, six million bucks. And, you know, in 1993, 1992, that was a good amount of money, you right. know? And so I bugged him. I took the train up to Greenwich. He was right there in those, those two buildings alongside the tracks right oh, at the sure. train station, right? So he took me out to lunch and I didn't know anything, but I had, I had found my way. This is my very first guy I'm going to talk to on Wall Street. Takes me to a little French diner. We start chatting or I start chatting. He's not saying a word. I'm just like, oh my God, this guy's going to make or break me. He's not saying a word. So finally, I said to him, I said, while he's munching on his salad, I said, hey, did I say anything today where you thought I was full of blank? And he said, yes. Really? He said, you told me today that you wanted to be the best. You don't want to be the best. You just want to win. Now let's go back to my office and let's talk. That was my indoctrination to Wall Street. Really? Mm -hmm. That's a fascinating conversation. So- how did that lead you to trend following? How did you the get- The exact from- same time I was having that conversation, I was in Borders Bookshop in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, about one month later, and this is 1994, and I see a magazine, and the magazine was Wall Street's top 100 paid for the year 1993. Really? Number 35, number 37, somewhere in there was a guy named Jerry Parker, mm-hmm. and he had just made $35 million in one year, and he was a turtle. And that fascinated me because I was like, "Uh uh-oh, there's something going on here. This guy's not an economist. He doesn't know every piece of fundamental information in the world. I might be able to do this. Now, the entire next segment of our conversation is going to involve the turtles. So hold off discussing that specifically because I really want to dive into that. But from seeing this list of, of top paid Wall Street people, how did you find your way from that into active trading? Well, it kept going on for about another year, and I kept bumping into other people. I was literally coming to conferences and just seeing who I could meet. Who could I knock on the door? I went to see Bill Dunn in Stewart, Florida, a longtime mm-hmm. trader, 40-year track record. Sure. I found John Henry in an event and approached him. I still remember his advice. What year was this? This would have been 1995, I John think. Henry, very famous trader, yeah. ultimately ends up Owner of the Boston Red Sox. He's done pretty well. Yeah, done pretty well. Brought them to a, a World Series for the first time, a I championship. I think they've done three, the, un, three under for him. For the first time in I don't know how many decades. Like 80. And, Not and, eight, I think. Eight, yeah. And um, uh, just just one of the greatest track records in the history of, of finance. So what sort of advice did he give to you? His advice was short and sweet. Because I said, I was looking at him like right after he was on the other side of the Barings Bank trade, mm-hmm. within months of that, and he said, he looked at me and he said, you know, it never gets easy losing money for people. Quite fascinating. He didn't want to talk much more than that. Pretty shy guy. If anyone's ever met him, not a very big guy, but he was, that was all he wanted to tell me. 
and he looked beat up. Really? Even though he had probably just made a half billion dollars in the preceding 90 days, he looked beat up. But it, that's heavy lifting. That's mm. a lot of work. It, yeah. It's exhausting. It's yeah. draining. Yes. It, it just Especially if the bills are, are stacked up on the ground and you have to pick them up. It's right. heavy. Right. That, pallets. What's a pallet? Is, what is it? Like $10 million? Is it a pallet of, uh, pallet of cash? So uh, so now it's John Henry. After, so I, after all of this, I decided to put up a website. Mm-hmm. And I ended up, and I'm not going to go into it yet because I know you want to come back to it, but putting up a website, my first blog in 1996 was really what got me started. That's amazing. And, and what was the name of the website way back when? Because back then, the big picture was a Yahoo GeoCities site. I always had a legitimate domain, Barry. I was always looking forward a little bit. It was turtletrader.com. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is author and trader, Mike Koval, uh, one of the books he wrote is The Complete Turtle Trader. Those of you who may have begun your career in finance by reading Jack Schwager's Market Wizards should be familiar with a chapter about Richard Dennis and the turtles. And I found that to be an absolutely fascinating part of that. And I want to discuss how you found your way to that. A little background, all the way back in 1986, Richard Dennis had made $80 million for the year. And in modern terms, that's almost $200 million. That's back when a million dollars was was real money. He was a legendary floor trader, a systems guru, and really an industry-leading money manager. And I'll let you tell the story of how did the turtles come about. Fascinating story. And there's still, to this day, uh, myth and legend and perhaps some superstition. People debate things, but here's the bottom line. Rich Dennis had made his first million by the age of 25 in 1976 as a floor trader. And and again, 76, a million dollars. That's a lot of money. I think there was about, he had made about 200 million total by like 82 and he was about 37 years old. Uh, And what I'm about to say is absolutely true. Him and his partner, Bill Eckhart, they went to see a movie. And the movie was Trading Places Mm -hmm. with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. They went to see this movie. They walked out and his partner, Bill Eckhart, said, hey, Rich, you, we can never do that. You're a savant. You're brilliant. They took a guy off the street. How? What a silly story. We can never do that. And Rich said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not special. We can teach people to do what I do. In other words, come up with rules and come up with guidelines to quantify and systematize what I kind of learned intuitively. They put ads in Barron's and Wall Street Journal. They hired trainees. They got like 2,000 applications. Really? They gave a screening test of true-false questions, asking what your favorite movie was, these types of things. And they selected about 20 people over two years. Mm -hmm. They gave them approximately two weeks training, staked them with varying amounts of capital from a couple hundred thousand to a couple million. They basically turned them loose for three and a half years. At the end of that three and a half year period, that group of approximately 20 had made $100 million profit. I actually went to the NFA, the National Futures Association, and I pulled all the original documents when they left the program to go register as money managers. They literally, it was like waiter, kitchen help. I mean, some of, I mean, some of them are very brilliant. Nonetheless, they'd gone to great schools and stuff, but it was a, a completely ragtag, random. disparate, random, completely random. It was awesome. And so in other words, the battle between nature and nurture, Dennis essentially proved you can create a great trader. You can build a great trader. 
it's not just something that you're either born with and have or don't. I never questioned it again myself. I think a lot of people still hear that story and question it. I saw that story and I was like, I saw the backgrounds and I said, that's it. Even if I never want to do trading, I have to accept this as truth. It's it's an amazing tale that the movie Trading Places inspired a real life version of let's figure out if we can actually create a person and turn them into a, a trader. So so let's talk a little bit about the subsequent careers of the turtles. What did they do afterwards? How did they all work out? You know, one of them became, well, all of them started money management firms, most all of them. And most all of them did extremely well. I mean, making millions of dollars, you know, the, the typical success marker everybody sees. One of them in particular, Jerry Parker, mm -hmm. managed over several billion for probably 20 plus years and just made himself an incredible fortune. Uh, one of the most plain-spoken, plain-talking guys. And if he was here right now, he'd be saying, hey, it's all, my success is all because of Rich Dennis. Rich Dennis was kind enough to say, here's how I made a fortune. Here are my rules. Go do it. So here's a quick question. Under normal circumstances, when someone identifies an inefficiency and an in inability for the market to recognize an issue, eventually that gets arbitraged away. Why haven't these rules been arbitraged away or copied by enough people that they no longer have uh, uh, an effect? Well, the way I would answer that is the turtles were just trend-following traders. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't the only trend-following traders. Rich Dennis had peers, peers like Bill Dunn and Ed Sakota and Keith Campbell and David Harding and Larry Height. And all of these guys, unaffiliated with Rich Dennis, were running trend-following firms. So... If you just look at the history of this, you say, well, why does trend following keep working? Why is it not broken down? Well, when is human nature going to change? That's the key to all of this is that people are unchanging. And even though we may have high frequency trading, we may have new entrants into the marketplace at, at the very bottom of it, it's, it's human nature that drives these things. Yeah. I mean, we're just, we want to get rich fast and, you know, if we start losing money, we just think it's going to come back and then we lose all of our money. So let's talk a little bit about trend following. Uh, next next uh, segment, we'll talk a lot more about human nature and, and some of the behavioral issues. But what was it about um, trend following that made it so successful? And, and let's give this a little context. These aren't people buying stocks and bonds. They're buying futures. They're trading uh, pretty much anything from commodities to currencies to what have you. And they're doing it with a lot of leverage. So how does that translate into the trend is your friend and that's how these folks made their money? I don't think instrument is critical. It's important. I mean, futures are the best instrument. You got the leverage, you got the liquidity. That's the best place to be. But you want diversification. You know, if you wake up and it's uh, early 2014 and every economist out there is saying, hey, uh, you know, we don't see anything happening for oil. And, you know, there's no prediction of a 60% drop in oil. But if you're a trend-following trader, you don't have a, a mindset or a prediction of where any particular market's going to go. So when it starts to move, you're just following along. You're following the crowd. Your indicator, your, your reason for moving is the price action. That's it. So if you think about trend following, think about it with like five kinds of ways to think about trend following, five rules. First, what's the portfolio you're going to trade? You can't trade everything. So generally trend following traders historically have chosen diversified portfolios, your gold, your oil, the equity indices, the interest rates, the currencies, the big liquid movers. Number, number two, 
When are you going to get in? What's going to force you to get into a position? Number three, how much are you going to bet? You can't bet unlimited. You know, you're going to bet half percent, one percent, ten percent. I can't tell you how many times I've given a presentation. I'll ask an audience. It could be an audience of a thousand people. How much would you bet on each trade? People actually say 10%. Look, come on. You know what's going to happen at 10%. The last four and five. When do you exit this trade with a winner? When do you exit this trade with a loser? What does this all look like when it's crunched through the system? You're basically a venture capitalist. You're basically a film financer. Jason Blum, he finances films, right? How does he do it? He bets on a bunch of things that cost very little money. And he'll get one big paranormal behavior or whatever it's called. And that's the one that makes him uh, That's makes the one fortune. that makes the fortune and pays for the losers for the other ones. None of this stuff can be predicted. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Michael Covell. He is a trader and author, probably best known for trend following and the complete total trader. He also has an extensive podcast, uh, over 400 episodes. And I've really enjoyed both listening to other people's podcasts and putting together my own little podcast. How did you find your way into uh, podcasting? We get to be in school, huh? We never get out of school now, right? Absolutely. That's it, awesome. It, it, it's it's an ongoing, from my perspective, I get to bring in some really, really smart people and say, teach me. It calms me down. Yeah. It, when you listen to really smart people over and over again, I really, I find myself calmer. I started it in January of 2012. I, my last book came out before that, about six months before that. And I don't know, I had done short brief podcasts several years before, like five minute little speech segments. And I just decided, well, okay, I, I want to do a podcast. It was completely on a lark. It was just, let's do it. And this was before what iTunes looks like today. Right. So that was, it was just really, and one thing led to another. I remember Jack Schwager who wrote the book, The Market Wizards that you mentioned. When he came on, that was when I saw my first pop because it had been two or three months of, okay, listens are going up. And then when Jack came on and he was promoting a new book, uh, that was like, boom. And it, it's exciting when that stuff happens, right? Schwager is legendary. Yeah. I mean, how, how many people do you think the first book they read when they started in finance was Market Wizards? So I had quick, funny digression. I had Schwager on the show. And when I invited him, he said, oh, for the guy who gave me that review, absolutely. Jack, what are you talking about? <laughs> I want you on the show, but I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, you wrote a review of Market Wizards on Amazon a decade ago, and it's the top, you know, it's the it's the most influential review. It's the So I had to go on Amazon. I'm like, oh my God, he's right. I forgot about it. Was it? So we had a really interesting conversation. I think he's a fascinating, fascinating guy. What was it that made you gravitate to long form podcasting? If it was it, was it just that? Hey, I have some time to kill, or what motivated that? I was working on a new book, and I knew it wasn't going to be coming out immediately. And I just, I don't know. It was just, it was just something where it was in my. In my soul, I want to do this. I want to talk to people. Look, I had done a film. I'd made a film. I'd traveled the world for several years. I'd had a chance to sit down and do long-form interviews already. And the film was Broke, an American uh, story, so to speak. <laughs> something something like that, yeah. Right? There, there was a, broke. You, you were in there. Oh, that's right. I you were in there. there doing something. But it was called, it was Broke. Broke. Broke, the new American dream. The new American dream. Right. My, my, my premise being is that Broke is the new American dream. People want to be broke because their actions are so irrational. That, w that makes some interesting sense. So, so let's, 
We're going to talk more about broke in in a latter segment. Let let's keep coming back to the to the podcast. So, any of your guests really surprise you with things they said? Yeah, and I I, I should. There's a timeline of like guests that broke the podcast. First was Jack Schwager, mm-hmm. and then my first guest to my first non trading guest was Dan Arley. And then once I got Dan Arley, I had a guy on who had been in my film named Vernon Smith, who won the Nobel, oh, sure. won the Nobel Prize. NYU, brilliant, right? Brilliant, brilliant guy. George Mason, now at, somewhere in Chapman in California. Mm-hmm. But once I had those guys on, I went for the home run. The home run guest. Mm. The one guy that I knew if I could get was going to really help my podcast. And that was Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. Shared it with Vernon Smith. And so I, I had asked him uh, six months prior, no response. Then I sent him an email knowing that he had won the prize the same year as Vernon Smith. They shared it. And I sent a link to Vernon Smith and he wrote me back and he said, I listened to that podcast with Vernon Smith. It's very good. And I'll sure I'll come on your show. And the thing that he said that was so amazing to me, it's not related to making money or investing, but he was in Nazi occupied Paris and there was a curfew. And he was not supposed to be out. And he was six, seven, eight years old. And alone, walking the streets. And a Nazi soldier spots him. And the Nazi soldier says, come here. Come here. Now, sure, Kahneman's thinking at that time. I'm done. I'm done. Right. The Nazi soldier sits him down on his knee, pulls out his wallet, and opens up his wallet, and shows him a picture of his son. They both spoke different languages, and they shared that experience. And Kahneman said that was what that was what triggered me into psychology. That that fascinating moment, I want to study people for the rest of my life. Kahneman just realizes, wow, what we think we know about people is all wrong. Those quick judgments, there's the Nazi soldier, he's gonna kill me. I'm a I'm a Jew in Paris on the streets, I'm gonna be killed. Didn't happen. And that caused him to reassess, take a step back and say, how can I how can I look at psychology for the rest of my life? He really knew at that instant. That That's that, amazing. That, that as a seven-year-old. Yeah. Fascinating. fascinating. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is trader and author Michael Covell, best known for the trend-following series of books. We were talking before the break about Daniel Kahneman's epiphany as a child on the war-torn streets of Nazi-occupied Paris. Uh, let let's let's talk a little bit about human behavior and psychology. What what did you learn from Kahneman about how psychology affects investing? Loss aversion. Nobody wants to take a loss. I just had I happened to have lunch with one of the guys that was profiled in Jack Schweiger's book Larry Hyde, and oh, La- sure. Larry is famous for just saying, you know, risk management. How much can you afford to lose? That's it. All the academics can have all the, 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 the complicated stuff and all the white papers. How much can you afford to lose? That's your risk management. And that's loss aversion tied in with Kahneman. That's just, I think many of the traders actually had figured out long before, it's not taking anything away from Kahneman, but clearly many traders had figured this out. I mean, David Ricardo back in the 1700s, sure. they had figured out loss reversion many, many, uh, arguably centuries before they gave out the Nobel Prizes for it. I started on a trading desk, and one of the first things they teach you is it's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to stay wrong. Mm. And that's essentially a form of, of you know, risk management. You you can't hope and wish and pray for a trade to suddenly go your way. If it's going against you, 
cut your losses and move on to the next one. Got to have chips to play, right? That's right. And if you get wiped out, you're done. You you move along. So uh, system one and system two from Kahneman is essentially what are what is your immediate response? That's that's the systemic way your brain has managed to keep you alive on the savanna. Not really well suited for, for trading in the capital markets, is that? Terrible, right? I mean, especially if you... Look, I say terrible. That you know, People could say, hey, that's uh, Mike Covell's opinion. Terrible if you look at the track records of the traders that have got you know, durations going back decades. What do they do? It's systematized. They have rules. These, this is not a day-to-day guessing game. There is not gun, they, not they, gun instinct, no, not off the seat no, of your pants. No, you, they're running businesses. You got to run. This is like a business, right? I got a gut instinct. My my stomach says buy this and sell that. Not a good way to run uh, manage money. You know, isn't there a story about George Soros and his back? Yes, absolutely. His you son. really do you really believe it? I I believe that on a subconscious level, his back is warning him about something. That he may not have, have but do you think do you think the buy and sell signals and the risk management is attached to his back? No, of course not. Yeah, you're not running billions of dollars right. on whether or not your your sacroiliac is bothering you. That, but day. I think the average person probably hears that story and they still think, oh, you know, it's seat of the pants. It's, it's instinct. Yeah. It's gut, and it really doesn't work that way. No. So so let's let's delve a little more deeper into uh, behavioral errors that are are, are fairly typical. What is the most common behavioral error that sinks traders? We mentioned loss aversion, but I tell you, framing is one too. Just how does one Just define framing? You know, how does one look? You can look at two. You can look at a number in two different ways. You know, you could eighty-five percent being right, fifteen percent of being you know wrong. I mean, there's. People- let me let me stop you right there. So doctors are trained in a really interesting aspect of that. So if you tell a patient. I have bad news and I have good news. The bad news is you have this fatal disease. The good news is there's a surgery with a pretty good track record of, of, of survival. You take two groups to group one. You say, you have a 75 chance of survival if we do this procedure. And group two, you say there's a 25% chance that you won't survive if we do this procedure. What do you think the reaction is amongst the 25% don't want to do it? That's right. And yet it's the same statistics. So that applies to trading as well. How how does framing affect what traders uh, behave? How do they behave? They behave in all the wrong ways. They behave in the ways that don't help them. I mean, look, this is about measurement. You have to measure how much money you have at all times. And if you can't do that- Meaning- Money is your inventory, Absolutely. and I'm going to quote Brett it's your way Steenberger. It's your way to keep score. So you know money, capital is what you have. It's what you're going to have to turn over. It's your inventory. If you're running a, 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 a gap and you have a certain number of shirts and pants in the back, you want that inventory turning over constantly. When you're running a trading operation for yourself, is that the way to think about capital? Is it's inventory that you have to manage? Absolutely, because look, we know what money can be used for. Mm-hmm. We're both in New York City. The streets are littered with gold. There's all kinds of toys we can buy. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of fun fun things to do. As well as basic survival, security, well, health, etc. Um, that's there, just where we start. There's a great trader out of London. We'll probably end up talking about him. David Harding of Winton Capital. And I saw him make the comment recently. It's once you reach that point where money is not an object, your trading improves. So in other words, the psychology of I got to hit a bogey this month, I got to make some payments, 
once that pressure goes away, once that psyche impact is lifted, they actually get better. Then you're just playing the board game risk. You're playing chess. You're playing mm -hmm. whatever skill game. You're applying the rules. When you think back when you're a kid, didn't you play risk as a kid? Like when you're a kid, you play the game the right way. You don't play it based on whether or not I can go to the Apple store and buy the newest iPhone today. Right. It's so dangerous. that's fascinating. Yeah. So what other little psychological insights did you garner from interviewing some of uh, these famous Nobel you know, Prize winning? I love Gerd Gigenrenzer. Mm -hmm. Gerd you just is, like saying that. Oh, it's he's awesome though. Risk Savvy, one of his most recent books. One of the things that he talks about, it's not necessarily trading, but it gets you in the probabilities mind frame. PSA tests. Like, you know, here I'm, I'm 47. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're probably about the same age as me. Older. Right, you know, so everyone wants men to go do these tests, uh -huh. right? Do these tests. These tests kill us. These are not good things. We're all going to have prostate problems at some point in time of our life. But the vast majority of us don't need the after effects of a PSA test. Mm -hmm. Incontinence and all kinds, you know, you're wetting your genes. Who knows what's going on? We don't want that kind of stuff. Right. So Gerd points out that you have to look more closely at the numbers and don't just let the fear drive you. So we've seen a number of studies about mammograms and false positives and doctors not really understanding how, how likely it is that a positive result is actually a false positive and not in an indicia of cancer. Is that what Geard is referring to? Look, the vast majority of us, if we live okay, et cetera, we're going to be fine. There's something's going to take us all out at some point in time, Eventually. but too much testing, too much of this stuff is absolutely harming us. So let me ask you about a couple of your podcasts that I have teed up, mm. but haven't listened to. Mm. Uh, Brent Steenbarger, who is somebody I've read for years yeah. and really enjoyed his work. Brett, I think is the, is synonymous with practical, mm -hmm. pragmatic Right. He just breaks down. So, you know, if you I imagine walking into his office as he was a practicing psychiatrist, walk in and he's going to take whatever drama you might have and break it down to its component parts and get you to think about each of the component parts. Once you do that, it's not so scary. I mean, that's that's the brilliance of what somebody like Brett does and how he ended up doing a lot of work with some fairly well-known fund managers and hedges and stuff. How different is that from just the broad-based, here are the cognitive errors that humans make all the time? I think it helps people to have a coach. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make a difference how much money you have, how much success you have. If somebody can walk in and analyze you unemotionally and say, here, I've broken it down, I've observed you, here's what you need to think about, that helps. I'm sure that's one of the secrets to Brett's success. So we've talked about risk aversion. We've talked about framing. What other cognitive errors or, or behavioral problems impact traders more so than they do other people? Well, one of the biggest ones, I guess, would be hurting. You know, a crowd effect, right? And a crowded trade is always a dangerous place to be. But look, if you've got a strategy to follow the crowd, that can be a good thing too, right? Mm -hmm. So, but look, too many traders don't have a sound strategy when it comes to something like hurting. They will see the crowd move, they'll get on board, but they don't have a full plan thought out. Trend following, for example, takes into account this hurting and says, you know what? If everyone's moving that direction, we want to be on board. Why not? 
Why not? Let's be on board. Look, take a, take a restaurant, for example. You walk into a new city like New York City. If I walk down the street, I haven't been to the city for four years. If I walk down the street, I walk four blocks, I pass 10 restaurants. Nine of those restaurants are empty. One of those restaurants is packed. Where am I eating? Of course, you're going to follow the crowd. They're right. all there for a specific reason. Right. So you're using the crowd as a sign that someone else has done their homework, someone else has done the fundamental research, they're piling in for a specific reason, and you think it's going to take that that trend further and you want to participate in it. I'm going to pile in too, and I'm going to have a stop loss as I pile in. Stop loss in that case, I guess, would be food poisoning. But if I get that, I'm getting out. So Mike, if people want to find your stuff, how can they, they track you down? Uh, I pretty much own the word trend following, so you can find me podcast, Twitter, websites. Treadfollowing.com. Good, good, to, good to know. Uh, be sure and stick around and listen to our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and allow the conversation uh, to continue on. Be sure and check out all of our previous 70 or so podcasts. You can find them on SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course on Apple iTunes. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. This is Barry Ritholtz, and you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today, and they're always a special guest, is Michael Covell, somebody I've known for, gee, a decade? Is it a decade? Almost a decade, for sure. Pretty close to it. So it's funny. We were talking about, uh, during the break, about, about podcasts, and I do some of the same things every time. When it's the podcast time, I throw my hands in the air. I get to like relax. It's a deep breath because I'm not hearing in my ear halfway, one minute, 30 seconds. I, I, there are no time constraints. It's always a challenge though too, right? You've got to, I'm doing it on the phone. You're doing it live, but you still have to bring something out of somebody. Which for some people, you just have to say, how's it going? And there's an hour and a half. <laughs> and for other people, you ask these questions and you get answers like, not really. Uh, what am I going to do with that? That's like a giant meatball that lands. In. Okay, well, that's all the time we have. It, it's that sort of stuff. So the funny thing you and I were talking about doing the podcast earlier and how this came about, when I first started doing this, the first 20 I recorded, but they weren't broadcast. So we had no idea, were these any good? Are people going to listen to these? It was, I was behind somebody else who were, there was a run of things that had to go out before these started broadcasting on the radio and, and going up on the site. So we really were kind of groping in the, in the dark, figuring out what works. And then to make matters worse, I have no professional radio training. I have no expertise. You neither. So with me, I have to follow this format of Bloomberg Radio or any radio for that matter where... You do the intro and, and you set up the guest. And then on the longer segments halfway through, you have to reintroduce the guest. You may have been wondering why you heard repeatedly. And our guest today, because I have to reintroduce the guest. And then you have to do the outro at the end of the segment. Coming up, we can. And for the life of me, I could not get those outros right. Because it's really very, very counterintuitive. So I, I, when I first started, it was always. When we come back, no, no, it's not when we come back. We're not going anywhere. We're here. Now think about someone sitting in your car, in their car, listening to the radio. They're not going anywhere. Coming up after the, no, it's not after the break. It was, so it took me a long time 
And after about 50 episodes, it's practically a year. So I would come back, do the podcast on a Monday, and I'd come back on a Tuesday and do the intros and outros. It was take me an hour to do all that stuff, to do the intro and the ending. And now it's a tape in my head. I don't know if you've experienced, you've done 400 yeah. of these. Look, lo love him or hate him, Howard Stern teaches the profession mm -hmm. of broadcasting. He's He is unbelievable. I've thrown up some of his podcasts. I shouldn't call that. Some of his interviews on the blog. Things like Louis C.K. and Madonna and James Taylor. And these are like masterful, masterful interviews. His Seinfeld interview of either 2013 or 2014 on the Howard Stern Show, easily found on YouTube or whatever, is one of the best pieces of listening I've It's ever amazing. Heard. And I went through a period. Listen, I used to listen to Howard... In my twenties and thirties, and you know, it was it was sophomoric and hilarious and and great. And then at a certain point, it's like I, I don't have time for this. And then once he went to XM, once he went to satellite radio, and really became more interesting, in many ways, more sophisticated anyway, a little less sophomoric, a little more, you know, a little bit of gravitas. He is a master in the field of broadcasting, and people don't really think of him that way, but they should. You know, people out there listening, okay, so you and I are two amateurs essentially doing this, right? So I'm hoping to achieve amateur status one day. But you still, if you're going to be, if you're going to have enough cojones to bring on Nobel Prize winners to your show. I've, you've had more. You've had four. I've only had three. Oh, wow. Uh, I better start looking yeah, for more. Yeah, you better. I'm right on your tab. <laughs> um, Although you, on a per capita basis, I'm ahead of you. But it's, <laughs> this is true. But it's, when, if you're going to have those types of minds on. Mm-hmm. There is a certain, you have to be confident, you have to be well-researched, and you have to make those people stimulated in such a way that they're not bored. Right. The worst thing is to hear a bored guest on your show. That, right? That's absolutely right. And, and I, the way I found that that works is we do a deep dive. My head of research, who you just signed a trend-following book to, Mike, Mike Batnick, he and I sit down, usually a few days before the podcast, and the question is, what do we want each segment to be about? And then what sort of, and I, he looks at the world very differently than I do. And he and I both come up with very different questions. And a lot of the questions that he comes up with, I'm like, you know, I never would have thought of asking that. And between the two of us, you know, when you're sitting down with a guy like Leon Cooperman of Omega Advisors, who's got a reputation being a tough guy and a difficult boss, and he's in work at 6 a.m., and he leaves at midnight, and the guy's a billionaire, and he still keeps those sort of hours. You better bring the serious questions. You can't just lollygag through that. Yeah. And uh, that's a really, really significant thing. If you could get a guy like him to say, hey, this these are really impressive. These are really good questions. You've gone places. And my argument pro podcast has been, look, we don't, the, the logo, the, the motto of the show is no stock picks, no forecasts. So right away, I'm different than- You didn't nine. tell me those rules. Those are my rules. No pod, no I don't have any, but All right, I so never would have. I've never had any. You stayed on the right side of, yeah. of, the, of the- Five uh, books in, I've never had anything amounting close to a pick. That, that's- Or no, a forecast or a prediction no or anything. Picks. So that makes you different from all these other, <laughs> all these other media. And on top of everything else, it makes you different than- the, the conversation, the focus, the boredom factor goes away for a guest who doesn't have to worry about, 
why do I have to do a stock pick? And is it going to be a good one? Is it going to be a bad one? Am I going to have to hear crap from my brother-in-law two Thanksgivings from now about this? Like those are the sort of silly things that, that take place. So you're 400 podcasts in. Memorable guest. Yes. One that really comes, two that come to mind. Robert Amen, believe 85-year-old Israeli. Mm-hmm. He is. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize in game theory. Now, you already know, if, you, if you're out there in the audience, you're saying, my gosh, I can't imagine interviewing an 85-year-old uh, Nobel Prize winner in game theory because the man knows more math than we could ever attempt right. to know. So I go into this episode, and he's kind of dragging this is over the phone. We get to talking about Switzerland, and we're talking a little bit about gun control. And it might have sounded political, but we start, he said, well, why, why are there fighter jets flying over? He goes to vacation in Switzerland in the summer. Why are there fighter jets flying over Switzerland? Now, this is one of the guys with Thomas Schelling who basically laid out that mutually assured destruction routine with the Soviets. So they were figuring out the math that you have to have bombers in the air 24 and 7 uh-huh. with nukes so for 40 years. You could, you could never have get caught unawares. No. A surprise attack. 40 years. Your fleet. 40 years we had bombers in the air, both sides. 40 right. years with loaded with nukes. But he brings up the point of Switzerland, and it's the idea that you have to have a credible threat. So while I don't attempt to get political, it was interesting. Here is a man who was talking essentially about the idea of arming yourself mm-hmm. to protect yourself. Now, if you look at it strictly from a political standpoint in America, that opens up Pandora's box. You have both sides. Everyone's arguing. But it's a challenge when you're talking to a man who you know is grounded in that much math. Right. What is what is the idea of armament to that man? He's thinking, you know what he's thinking. It's, it's the uh, Beautiful Mind movie going on while you're interviewing right. him. Right. And he's not talking about whether you can carry automatic weapons or, or, the, or hidden carry rules. He's talking about how do you prevent nuclear Armageddon yeah. through a series of decisions that forces everybody to simultaneously arm up and avoid destroying each other, yeah, which is a fascinating, fascinating yeah. thought. Douglas Emlin, mm-hmm. Animal Weapons. Animal Weapons. Great book. I don't recall that. Yeah, it came out recently. Basically, he wrote about the idea that the animals that have the the elongated, the larger fangs weapons, and the, claws fangs and horns, and claws, they spend so much energy mm-hmm. trying to get these things. And they don't survive. They usually die out. The saber-toothed cat or whatever. The saber-toothed cat could barely run. It sat in a tree and fell on top of elephants and bit into it. Right. I mean, so it's, it's you know, and he started this through the study of dung beetles. Jack Horner was uh-huh. on my podcast. Who was the, the paleontologist. The paleo- oh, he was fantastic. That must have been amazing. You got to get him off. He's ever in New I'd York. Love He's to. fantastic. He's fantastic. There's a handful of- um, He's building a Chickasaurus. I read about that. He's going to basically do his own Jurassic Park. Figured out how to make the tail turn on. The wings will go from wings to claws, and they've turned. They figured out how to turn on teeth in the beak. Mm -hmm. Can you not wait for? You will even arm up for this if you have to go get your latte at Starbucks, Uh right? And you've got to walk down the street in New York City because somebody has re-engineered raptors to run wild. This is not exactly related to investing, but these guys fascinate me. So uh, there's a handful of astrophysicists I'm trying to get on the program as well, because that area of uh, how rapidly that's been changing over the past five years is quite fascinating. And what what I find intriguing about that, look, everything is epistemology to me. Everything is 
the study of knowledge, the theory of how we learn, and more importantly, and this is a part that everybody in finance needs to pay attention to, how we make mistakes and how we subsequently learn from those errors. Mistakes, to quote um, Thomas Edison, failure is just bringing me that much closer to success. And that sort of philosophy is really quite amazing, and I see consistently amongst some of the most successful people uh, I've had on the show. You know, we're talking about traders, some of the newer trend-following traders today, physics backgrounds, huge. Jean-Philippe Bouchot, CFM out of Paris, uh, Ewan Kirk, Cantab out of London, David Harding, Winton out of London. These guys all have physics backgrounds. Now, their systems ultimately might be fairly simple. There's a great book out right now called Simple Rules by Kathleen Eisenhart. So you want to have simple rules, but the thinking behind it, extreme complexity. And, and you know, when you look at the ability of physics to land a craft on a moving comet, right, where we know very specifically, here's what the math is behind it, here's what the result of each subsequent uh, action and all these complicated and interrelated dynamics, it's not a big surprise that people who have an expertise in that find success in the world of finance because there are many, certainly there are many ways it's different, but there are many, many parallels. And I think people forget that. You take physics and throw in a little human psychology and that's a recipe for making a When lot did of you hit on finance. trend following for the first time? You were emailing me, gosh, we were probably emailing together. A decade ago? 2002, 2001. So I began my career as a trader. I quickly figured out that there was a tremendous Did you amount, notice I was comfortable with the flip there? Yep, the tremendous amount of randomness in how people you know, the trader, first of all, they don't give you any training. They take you to the deep end of the pool and push you in. And whoever doesn't drown, all right, you guys get a desk and you we'll stake you with, with some capital. And essentially, this guy to my right is killing it this month. And the guy on my left is stinking it up. And next month it flips. And I became more fascinated by why different traders were making or losing money than what was going on in my screen. And eventually figured, and I had some great months and some terrible months, but eventually figured out that the study of why investors are either more or less successful than others really took over my my daily focus. And that's how I ended up moving into first research and then strategy and then ultimately asset management. But the progression, the that progression comes specifically from. Why is this guy and that guy, who are, appear to be doing the same thing, reaching such different levels of, of attainment and success and inconsistent uh, to boot? Why is it reversing from this month to that month? And I learned a lot just by watching people. Like, I didn't necessarily know what to do, but I quickly figured out what not to do by watching people. And I found myself studying other traders more than I was... Wanting to stick my face in the screen, and I, I love trading too much. And I that by the way, looking for that vein, that was like a sign. All right, it's time to uh, to to enter a twelve step program. It was e it was painful to move from trading to research, but I had just a uh, just enough self awareness to know that I enjoyed it too much that I would ever be. Um, Do you think that I was a junkie? It was like it was like the thrill as opposed to the cold, cool, right. disciplined right. rules of the most successful I remember traders. going into Bill Dunn's office. Bill Dunn is one of the few investors that has a continuous track record going on over 40 years. That's amazing. I think it's somewhere between 16 and 19% after fees. 
I mean, come on. That's that's a that's a story in of itself. I remember going to his office for the first time. I believe it was 1996, and I walked in. It was in Stewart, Florida, you know, right down there near Palm Beach. And I walked in, and there was no one in the waiting room. There was no secretary. There was several magazines that were. I looked at them. They were several years old. There was no one in the office looking at a screen. And they were running billions of dollars. It felt like a CPA office. Uh-huh. That experience also, because here you are, you're talking about all the excitement. You're talking about veins and all that kind of stuff. My first experiences were the exact opposite. I was looking at these guys that were treating trading like a law office, like That's a CPA right. firm. And so I never had the experience that you're talking about. Well, but it, it was really clear very quickly that if they're, if you're doing this for the thrill, if you're doing this for the buzz, you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. And you need to be cold and bloodless and disciplines and be able to just treat it like a dentist's office, not treat it like you're going to Vegas and it's a party because it shouldn't be. Yeah. Look, look, good, good investing should be boring. And I think really successful trading should be, I don't want to say mechanical, but certainly rules driven. Can you say mechanical? Yes, absolutely. Right? I would say the vast majority. Look, we're, trend following is my world. I would say the vast majority of trend following traders are mechanical. 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 In fact, I'm fairly certain you and Kirk told me on the show that he has an algorithm pick, that picks lunch for the day. That's a little insane. Picks lunch for the I'm day. I'm fairly certain, you and if I'm wrong. <laughs> That's amazing. See, now I could never have an algorithm that picks lunch for the day because I have too many lunch choices in and about New York, and I would rather choice though the paradox of choice. This is the Barry Schwartz part. I've the never, choice issue. So let's talk a little bit about that. If that's an issue that I've never had a hard time with. I know a lot of people are paradox. You like your, you like your choice. You I'm like, an I'm an aberration. You can make a decision. Yeah, I, I'm. A, well, first of all, so here's where the the algorithm comes in. I have some my own internalized rules that you give me a list of uh, uh, eighty things. I don't care what it is. It could be 80 different hot sauces, a thousand different restaurants. There is a series of steps you can take, process of elimination. Okay, get rid of these, get rid of those, get rid of these. I want something with a little of this. And right away, that list of 10,000 is now four, mm. and you have to choose from four. So uh, there are ways to deal with that, that, that paradox of choice. But I think most people can't don't have a systemic approach to that sort of thing. And And a lot of this comes from just experience where you're confronted with that you either succumb to that paralysis or develop some methodology of of dealing with it but i we've had this debate Uh, my favorite example of this is the advantages of a benevolent dictatorship over a democracy mostly in summer beach house shares and you learn that you never ask a room full of people what they want for dinner or what the movie they want to see because if you do that you set off a 20-minute debate, and you ultimately end up paralyzed the paradox of choice. The benevolent dictatorship says, hey, I'm going for a slice of pizza. Anyone want to join me? And you make a decision, and the crowd comes. If someone else says, no, I prefer a hamburger, you have to make a split-second decision. Do we start this migration or... um? Because if you say, that sounds good, let's do that. I just had pizza yesterday. Now someone else wants a hot dog and it, it's a whole bunch of craziness. So benevolent- take that Take that benevolent dictator and expand it geopolitically. I currently live and spend the vast majority of my time in Southeast Asia, specifically Saigon, Vietnam. Okay, mm-hmm. benevolent dictator. You might not think 
That's how you would describe a communist country. I think you could put that term Singapore, benevolent dictator, Vietnam, benevolent dictator, China, benevolent dictator. Look, those guys want the power in those countries, mm -hmm. but they let the people get rich. They let the people keep improving and they make the big decisions. New York City, as I walk around for the first time in four years, this city can never be rebuilt in 2015. Never. People would never allow it to happen. There'd be too many hands in the cookie jar. Right. There's too many environmental this and environmental that. The benevolent dictator solves those issues. It just takes your point even to another a level. step further. We're yeah. going to build the city. If you don't like it, too bad. And if yeah. there's a lot of smog and no one can breathe, we'll worry about that later. That seems to be the approach. Which brings me to the question. There was probably some smog here, though, in the, back in the day at one point in time. Well, you had the EPA pass rules in response to, under President Nixon, in response to people really being concerned about health and what have you. But I want to ask you, hmm. what makes a kid from Virginia decide... I'm going to pick up and go to Asia. How did that come about? Well, I was living most of my life in Vienna, Virginia. Uh, 2008, working on this film when you were kind enough to appear in my Broke. film. I, 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 was, new American I, I moved dream. to San Diego and I was living in San Diego. I started this podcast and actually starting the podcast got me to Asia because... I started doing yoga in 2012 and mm -hmm. a guy listening to my podcast said, Hey, I really like yoga. My friend of mine, a friend of mine runs the CLSA office in uh, CLSA, uh, Hong Kong brokerage firm runs the CLA CLSA office in Tokyo. Will you come speak? I had done a gig for them before. I said, sure. They called me up. They said, let's, uh, let's have you over. And at that moment, I, he said, well, let's book the ticket for you. And I said, well, so where are you flying from? And I said, well, uh, I'm going to already be in Asia. I wasn't already going to be in Asia. I just said this. At that moment, he then said to me, hey, would you like to speak for us in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Kuala Lumpur, Singapore, and Hong Kong? I said, uh, and we'll pay you the same for each, each day over four months. And I said, oh, Thank you. Twist my arm. Yes, we've got a deal. A paid trip uh, seeing all of the best of Asia. Yes. So yes. that had to be a fascinating Yeah, run. my four, first four months of 2013. And my last stop, I was doing this around the world fair and first class on United or something. And I, I my last stop was Bali. And I, I was in Bali and I was like, okay, I'm not going back to San Diego. I'm going to live in Asia. But I can't stand Bali after two weeks. And I said to myself... Where did I have the most fun over the last four months? Huh. And it was Saigon, Vietnam, now known as Ho Chi Minh City. And so communist... Wasn't that what it originally known as, Ho Chi Minh City? It's originally, known as, originally known as Saigon, renamed Ho Chi Minh City after we left in 75. Uh-huh. And so you, you've been there for two years now, is that right? 2000. Half of thirteen, all of fourteen, all of fifteen. Coming up on three years. Yeah. How, how do you find it? How do you find the people there? Given our little adventure there in the sixties and seventies, how is an American abroad treated in in Saigon slash Ho Chi Minh City? Fantastic. That no, I've nobody never harbors ill will. I or have never like that. had anybody bring up the war with me. Really? Not one. Not one. And just. For numbers, so people can wrap their arms around this, most of us in America know, since I my family lives about 15 miles outside Washington, D.C., most of us know that about mm, 60,000 Americans died during the Vietnamese War. Touch less, but yeah, that's that's the number. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, some, and, and the Vietnamese? The Vietnamese number is somewhere between 3.5 and 5 million. 
It's an amazing, amazing. So you get over there and you're like, whoa, it really forces. And of course, then you have the whole come to Jesus of like, why were we even here? Because look, we thought that, you know, there's this domino theory and apparently nobody in the state department bothered to understand that the Vietnamese hate the Chinese. The Vietnamese didn't really like the Russians and they just wanted their own damn country after being dominated for a thousand years by the Chinese, the French and the Americans. And so somehow or another, we decided that was going to be the domino theory. And it was a huge mistake. You know, it's fascinating for people who aren't familiar with Asia the different cultural groups, the different countries and their long history. It's no different than Europe. We just look at them in a different perspective. Japan, Korea, China, Vietnam. Uh, There's a long history of the Philippines, of different parts of that world, disliking and engaging in warfare. Everybody seems to have have had a fight with the Japanese at one point in time uh, uh, in Asia. It's really quite fascinating but it's not all that different from what took place in Europe or what took place, you know, uh, on on this half of the world. So, so you end up in Saigon. Cost of living's got to be next to nothing there. It's not bad. I'm I, I stay at a pretty cool place. It's uh, it's not bad. It's not New York City for sure. It's not Tokyo. I was just in Tokyo. Love Tokyo, but uh, you know, it's not even the cost of living. It's there's a there's a a cowboy feel. Uh-huh. On Saigon, it's, it's the it's the wild west of capitalism. It's the wild west of capitalism. I mean, it's just everything's under construction. The, the Japanese are building their first metro there. I just you know, there's a million motorbikes. I mean, right now I have I could I'm looking out of this Bloomberg facility, and I can imagine if I was to walk out here in Saigon, there could be 200 meters of motorbikes going in different directions. And as an American, I would have absolutely no problem walking straight out into the middle of it and not even blinking because and I, nobody's going to hit you. I, I know how they think. And how how do they think? It's very Zen. I mean, it's ninety percent Buddhist. So right. They're not trying to kill you. They're just trying to get somewhere. Right. You know. So hey, I wanted wait, to add, so, wait. Wait. Vietnam is ninety percent Buddhist. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's quite fascinating. So you're about yeah. to say? I was about to say. You know, on this this little excursion I told you about, uh, this four month tour that got me to Asia. One of the fascinating things about that was it was four months of speaking to the biggest funds in Asia. Uh-huh. So when I was in China, I was speaking to China Asset Management, which is their largest sovereign wealth fund. When I was in Singapore, GIC, their sovereign wealth fund. And just to share some fun stories about how things go down in different parts of the world. So I'm presenting a trend-following presentation to a group of people at China Asset Management. This is the largest fund in the country. So there's 25, you have to assume, the smartest people in the country of right. 1.4 billion. You know they've gone through who knows how many tests to get to that room. Sure. And- I give this presentation. There's a translator. I talk for a sentence, translate. Da, da. At the end of it, I say, hey, any questions? The lead guy, very first question, perfect English. Uh, the whole room, everybody speaks perfect, perfect English. English. Perfect English. And then they, they immediately got so excited because they were like, oh my gosh, there's this trader we all know about in China who's made billions of dollars. And what he does is he buys right before the market goes limit up. And so they all... China, of all the countries that I've been to, uh-huh. instinctively understands momentum and trend. It's in their blood. Why? Why do you I think that is? Because they don't, you tr- go they don't back trust to- the fundamentals. They don't trust the fundamentals they, at all. They've learned not to believe anything. They don't believe they anything at the, the fundamentals. Government. The only thing they believe is the momentum. So that's funny because you would think the Japanese who've had candlestick charting for centuries, you would think they would be the ones that would be more likely to, uh, to, to buy into that sort of stuff. I find it's just the opposite. I find every time I'm in Tokyo, everyone's super nice, but their interest level is kind of like a, you know, it's like a, a pulse that's just flatline. 
Huh. That, the that, Chinese, the Chinese, when it comes to, you know, Bitcoin betting, it's, I mean, look, I was in an event in Beijing in June. Uh, most of the men will work and then the women will go to financial conferences. So it was 60% women ages 40 to 70. The excitement level to sit there and talk about technical trend following off the charts. Well, isn't it true that-, that Over a that, thousand, it was crazy. That, isn't it true that the, I forgot the Chinese word for housewives- are who are have been opening all these brokerage accounts in China and leveraging up and and day trading, and that's why even after a forty percent drop in the Shanghai index year to date, or at least this is true as of August or September, we're still like marginally positive. That they have had such a spectacular run for the past few years that this forty percent whack is really just seems to be a minor setback to. Uh, to, to the day traders in China. I'll share, I'll share another one with you. So that during that period, I spoke with the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Singapore. And so here I am at this, this very nice office. This is called GIC. And three people, there are three key people. And I'm give a presentation on trend following. And the first guy immediately says, ah, oh, we can't do any of this. this we, we're value guys. We're fundamental guys. We, we can't do any of this. This is just not us. And over there on the other side was one of the three main guys contemplating. And then he bursts out and he says, oh, man, we can't keep doing this stuff. It's not working. We just read the Kahneman book. None of this is we've got to do some other stuff. So it's interesting to see even at the highest reaches uh -huh. of, you know, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, the desire to hold on and the desire to or the need to break away and do something different. That's amazing. You would think that these are just people in different slots and it doesn't matter whether it's a Chinese sovereign wealth fund or a day trading housewife in China, it's still a human being making decisions and whether they're successful or not is what motivates them to let's try something else, maybe that'll work. Every place is different. I, every, every, speaking in Hong Kong, uh -huh. nobody in Hong Kong is interested in the subject of trend following. It's just expat white guys that know everything. <laughs> they, don't, they don't want to know anything else. It's funny. So you, but I find So why is that? Are they successful enough on their own that they don't feel the need to keep growing or is it I just I think it's arrogance. Oh, all right. Well, that that's not a a big shocker and and are these former Brits? What sort of what sort of background yeah. are these people? So a little upper class uh British hubris. Uh the Chinese aren't like that. The Chinese just want to win. Right. You know. And now look, I mean, and the other thing is too is it I find every time that I've been in mainland China Mm -hmm. The reception and the warmth is off the charts. Really? So, you know, we have this, we have the media in the States talking about a war and this and that. And every time I go there, they treat me like royalty. They are so nice. They want to engage. They want to talk. You know, they're not happy about the Japanese. They're free to tell you that. Nobody, nobody in Asia seems to be happy about the Japanese. No, the Vietnamese love the Japanese. Oh, really? Why yeah. is that? I think... Well, the Japanese have been huge investors in Vietnam. So uh -huh. the Singaporeans and the and the Japanese invest huge in Vietnam. I wonder why that is. Just an opportunity or That's a counterbalance? 90, 90 million people, 45 million of them are under the age of 30. That means 45 million people were born after the war. So they don't care. They're all young people that just want to get ahead. Right. It's You know, look, it doesn't make a difference where we're at. But the, the real issue when I travel the world and seeing Asia and to pass along some insights, demographics. Look at the demographics. You go Japan, to, the gem demographics are terrible. Yeah, everyone's old. Everyone in Vietnam. Vietnam's like going to a party. And and what's going on with China now that they've 
overturn the the one child per family rule, are they going to run into the same issue where they don't have enough young people and they're going to have a bunch of aging single people? Well, I think that's why they years? did it, right? Yeah, one would expect. Yeah. So what what what's your read of of the demographics in China, or is it just so big and so vast and so varied you can't draw any single conclusion? You exactly. It's 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 a it's a it's a really big ship. What about Korea? I'll pass something along about interesting about China though. When I presented there in Beijing of this year, like I said, it was over in front of about a thousand people, and the translation was really rough. The translation was not good. How do you know? Well, the crowd started getting restless. So I'm in front of a thousand people. Okay, right? Maybe twelve hundred. I mean, do you speak Mandarin? No, I don't speak anything. There's a translation. I speak for thirty seconds. There's a translation. The audience starts getting restless. All of a sudden, they start talking. Twelve hundred people talking at once from at the once. crowd. Right. So I can't hear myself. So we we had to stop. Uh huh. The it was basically a mutiny. The audience really? de- the audience decided that the translators were so bad. They then commandeered and found people in the audience from Malaysia who spoke, spoke English, English and Mandarin, who had read my books. Brought the guy up out of the audience, and he translated for the rest of the event. It made me realize about China uh-huh. that the that the the leaders of China have to give that crowd what they want. Or, or they have some real trouble facing their way. And I think they do a pretty good job of that. I mean, anyone's been to Shanghai, uh, you know, I mean, even Hong Kong continues to do well, but Shanghai is the real jewel. So, in, I mean, what is there? I don't know how many cities there are in China with over a population of uh, one million. It's, it's massive. hundred. It's, it's massive. It's huge. So, you know, the big challenge China faced where they had all these a billion seven coming up on two billion people. Uh, with half of the country still living on the farm. Have they successfully moved people into the cities, Has, or is that still a work in progress? I took the bullet train from Shanghai to Beijing, which is about the same distance from Washington, D.C. to Orlando, and the entire way was construction cranes and condos. Mm-hmm. Whether they've moved everyone into those or not, I it, don't know. That's the direction it's going. Yeah. How long did that trip take? That for, that would have been the equivalent of eight hours here in the States. About the same distance as the Accela from New York to D.C. All right, so three hours here. Three or four there. hours, yeah. yeah. So they're going quick. They've actually got bullet trains. What we have, I'm not really sure. No, we have a rotting infrastructure and a, yeah. a government that Again, doesn't understand uh, the benevolent job. The benevolent dictators on infrastructure, uh, you know, it helps. To say to say the least. It helps. To, to say the absolute least. Um, Korea, that's the one place you haven't mentioned. Did you make your way over to Seoul? I've not been to Korea yet. I've not been to Korea yet. I have to make it. My, yeah. my first trip I want to go in the new year is Myanmar, uh-huh. Burma. Yep. So that's where I want The only to. thing I know about Burma is down by McSorley's. There used to be a Burmese restaurant yeah. that was quite fantastic 20 years ago. I don't, I don't know if it's still there. Uh, speaking of food and, and the paradox of choice, Singapore is supposed to be the food capital of Asia. Ah, Tokyo. Tokyo, Tokyo over Singapore. More Michelin star restaurants in Tokyo than anywhere else in the world. Oh, really? Yeah. Singapore is supposed to basically be the crossroads of Asia. And you could get any type of Asian food. I have some fantastic Singaporean friends. I love them to death. If I've given a choice of food, I'm going to go right alongside Bourdain and we're going to go to Tokyo. By the way, he's someone who's on my list to uh, to get on the show. I've had Bobby Flay, who was a fascinating guy, a real New Yorker. We left. We took the subway downtown. And as we're walking down the street, people are like, oh, my God, it's Bobby Flay. And he's like, nods, and we get in the subway. Like, talk about a New Yorker. Bourdain is really a fascinating character. Yeah. Um, he, would, he would be really interesting. You know, on the choice on food, I should add, I could go through the rest of my life with somebody else choosing for me. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. Why not? 
Why control. Not? It's a control thing. It, it, it's, but think about think about living in a place like Vietnam where you uh-huh. don't know most of the menu. That's not you true. You can't read it. Knowing Vietnamese, do they have pictures on the menus? Can you point? Give me this, this, and this. <laughs> you could do a little. And you don't speak Vietnamese at all. You get by with English without Come a problem. Come on, <laughs> right? A little bit, a little bit. You speak very little. Vi- very little. If you had to not speak English, Ray Fi, Ray Try, Ditang, right, <laughs> right, left, straight ahead. <laughs> but but how how fluent are you? If, if you couldn't use English, you'd be in trouble there. You bring up a good point. Generally, and I see this in Tokyo now too. English is really permeating. It's Everywhere. it's permeating because look, it's the business language, and I'm not being a cocky American or uh, listen. Or it's arrogant. the Brits, not not yeah. us. The Brits are the one yeah. who who made English the yeah. English mm. England. The the English are the ones who made English the global language, not us ugly Americans. You know, the old joke is two people separated by a common language. Let me give one tip to your audience. I don't think this tip has been given yet on your show. If you want to take an interesting vacation, mm-hmm. just go to Saigon. Trust me. Go to Saigon. Don't go to Thailand. Don't go to Singapore. Don't go to Tokyo. I mean, you can go to all those places. They're all fine. But go to the place that's off the beaten track. You will be shocked. Uh, my parents just came back. I don't think my father's going to stop talking about Vietnam until the day he dies. Really? He's in love with it. it it's, it's He's in my, love with it. It's probably my favorite food in the world, Vietnamese. It's... What's amazing about New York, which has every fantastic restaurant you can find, it's much harder to find a good Vietnamese restaurant here than, say, if you go to, to San Francisco or even Montreal. You could, can't walk a block without in Quebec and Montreal without finding a banh mi shop. And if you go to San Francisco, there's some fantastic Vietnamese, few and far between on the East Coast. And, and I'm surprised— Given sushi and a, a million varieties of different other Asian cuisines from Korean, there's a huge Korean town in in down on 32nd Street and Broadway. That's that's a fascinating. Got to get you off the island, Barry. What the off island of Manhattan? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm 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 in this general region, but I travel around the country pretty regularly for work. I would have you done year, Asia yet? I have not done Asia, and it's something I really want to put some time into. Nonstop into Tokyo. Eh, 12 to 14 hours, six more hours to Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. You can cover Bangkok, Singapore, I had City. I had an event it's I calling was you, supposed Barry. to speak at uh, a couple of years ago, and then some international thing happened and the event got canceled. So um, I, I, I need to get over there. It's certainly on my short list of places to go. You brought something up a second <clears> ago <throat> that I want to circle back to. You were talking about, you were talking about risk, essentially. One of the things I find really fascinating about the world that I'm in is I shift out of Vietnamese food is drawdown. And when I had Ben Carlson of your firm on my show, we talked about this. We specifically talked about Warren Buffett because in my world, the trend-following world, it's not unusual to have your capital go down a significant amount. Sure. I mean, look, if you're if you're trying to jump on a trend and you can't predict the trend's direction and you got to take a bite of the apple and you lose, those little losses can add up. Sure. Right? So- Ben had pointed something out in his book about the number of 30% down moves that Buffett had taken in the last uh, 25 years. I think it was five, and two of those were minus 50%. Buffett in the last 25 years. That, that right there is amazing. For people that don't understand trading, or even people that do understand trading, that Warren Buffett's allowing himself to take five 30% plus drawdowns. A lot of wisdom in that statement, in that bit of evidence to break apart for sure. So one of the columns I had done for the Washington Post 
uh, was it last summer, was looking at Apple and saying, you know, people talk about Apple up 27,000% over the past 30 years. And I always laugh whenever anyone says, I wish I could, I could have bought Apple way back when. My answer is, why? What makes you think you would have held it through the number of, forget 30 or 50% drawdowns, how about the 80 to 90% drawdowns they've had repeatedly throughout their history? You would not have, anybody who tells me, if only I held Apple over the past 30, unless you put in a draw and forgot you had it, you would not have rode Apple. Think, think about the near-death experience in the late 90s. Think about the 70% crash in the, in the mid-2000s. Think about the most recent drop. It's one of those things that people just can't live through. I'm trying to find you a pick right now that you, I know given that you're an Apple guy, you- I'm a, I'm a Mac fanboy since my classic in 1989. Really? So, so hold on, it goes back to 1989? Yep. Just keep keep talking. I had to find this picture for you. Where the heck is it? You will, you will be- uh... Just you and Steve Jobs? Is that what you're going to show me? Oh, come on, man. You and Waz. Very nice. Saigon Airport. Oh, really? It's about and two. he looks genuinely happy. Two, Usually well, you take a selfie with a guy like that, well, and they're, they're rolling their eyes at that. Now, come on. Look, I, I'm like you. I have to ask a lot of interesting people to come on a podcast, right. so you've got to do the approach, right? Did you get Waz? So I'm, yeah, I'm sitting there minding my own business. This guy taps me on the shoulder. I'm sitting with my parents. This guy taps me on the shoulder. I got my cell phone plugged in behind me. He says, hey, can I, share, can I plug my splitter in and share your power? And in that quarter second, I looked at his face and I said, sure, as long as you give me a selfie. And he said, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I know I only have you for a certain amount of time. Uh, and I want to get to some of my favorite questions. What's our hard stop on the recording today? At 530. All right. So, so we are down to our last half hour. I have my eight favorite questions. I'll come back to them in about 10 minutes. I want to stick with some of the things we've been talking about. We discussed Asia. I have to ask you about Broke the New American Dream. What motivated you, a trading guy, to make a movie about pre-financial crisis, about what was going on in the housing market and the huge shifts in, in American economic demographics? So a budget was put together, and there was going to be a reality show on the Turtles. Huh. Then at the process of doing my turtle book, a lot of the turtles started throwing, uh, look, this was a secretive thing. People didn't want this right. out. So I got, a, I got a few legal few legal notices here and there. Oh, really? And not today, but back in the day, there, were, there was a concern. And so we shifted on a dime and I had, I had hired a director and we were going to do a retrospective on the dot-com bubble. And she said, Michael, I want to do a story on a guy that started with nothing, went to a billion and lost it all. And I said, well, that's great. We don't have that person. And she said, well, I know someone that that, that happened to. And I said, oh, really? Who? I looked up the guy's name and he was an heir to the Nestle family fortune. And I said, well, can't, can't use this guy. It's not going to work. And she said, Michael, don't worry about it. The audience will believe anything we tell them to believe. And I said, okay, you're fired. So long story short, <laughs> long story short, um, I ended up becoming the director and it was meant to be a trend following picture. That's uh -huh. why there's so many trend following traders in it. And as we were filming it, we were stumbling into the crisis. 
So right as the housing as, crisis right was, was unfolding. So it wasn't planned. And I wasn't really trying to make any kind of a fundamental statement other than look what can happen when you lever up and you really don't think about bubbles. So that right. was really the premise. It wasn't, I wasn't trying to make any grand statement about, uh, you know, where things can go. I mean, of course, in the middle of it, uh, I took some shots at things like state lotteries, which are a boondoggle, but- Can I tell you, that's one of my many pet peeves in, in uh, I forgot what piece I had written this in not too long ago. Do you realize that across the country, state lottos make more money than all the professional sports, all of movies, all of music, all of books, and Apple App Store combined? I think the stats, if I'm going to try and go from memory for a few years. $70 billion dollars a year. 35% of the people that play the lottery think it's their best chance for making a half million dollars for retirement. That's insane. It's sad because it, what's and, really, and it's mostly people who really can't afford absolutely. to lose the twenty and, and what's, bucks. And what's sad about it is, like, if we had to really make a moral type statement, no one's going to care. No one's going to do anything. The country's too big, whatever. But it really is something where the government is truly abusing the disadvantaged class. Yeah, no, for no. abusing. The, look, Mark Twain called gambling a tax on the stupid, and this is you're taxing the poorest least capable people yeah. of, of paying this bill. It's it's awful. So from that, from gambling, how did you see the parallels to, uh, you know, the stripper with six houses and other people speculating? Oh, and, that was just to add a little color. But and all the flippers The and poker, though. Else. The poker was the real thing. The poker mm. was, you know, getting the poker players in the film because I had so many people talking about poker, whether it was the trend-following traders or at the time, uh, Bill Miller and Michael Mobison down there at Leg Mason. I know he's Mike... Mike's moved Credit on. Swiss. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, also a guest on the show, and he's been on your podcast awesome. as I mean, well. Like, you know, just a, a side tangent note. Did you uh, read the last? Read book? more than you know. Uh, the book after the, the, that, the, the skill and uh, right. Yeah. So, um, what is the name of it? I could punch it up. It's a, it's a look at at skill and luck yeah. in business, sports, and investing. Yeah, uh, the know, success he, equation. Listen, you know what's great about what Michael did? Michael really made it. I don't want to say fashionable, that sounds trite, but he made it very acceptable to take all these disparate disciplines and use them to make a point in investing. He was doing that in the late 90s. Yeah, his stuff is fascinating. Yeah. You could, By the way, you could pull, I don't know if it's still on the Leg Mason site, but it used to be all of his quarterly missives, which are eight-page works of genius. I have them from his, before Leg Mason when he was at Credit Suisse, before because he mm -hmm. came back to Credit Suisse now. Right. So I've got all of his old ones from the 90s. They're, They're fabulous. Oh. They really are. That, that's yeah. a book in and of itself. Yeah. Someone, someone should tell him yeah. to uh, to crank that out. So you put out the um, the movie. What did you learn from the experience of doing it? And and what did you learn from I the, learned, actual, um, the, the actual... I learned don't submit your film to Sundance <laughs> in September of 08... <laughs> Because <laughs> that was the deadline, September of 08. Right I think mid-September mid of 08 was I had to submit the film to Sundance. So, right. you know, of course. And I think the, the thing that I really learned is that you, you need to have time. So if there's going to be a big event, you really can't be first. You need to have time for people to settle on it. Even though I thought my message was important uh, for people to really think about uh, the bubbles and whatnot and how to, how to prepare, uh, it was too early. And I think also... I wasn't blaming anybody except the end user. I was blaming us. Right. I didn't blame, you know, all these boogeymen up here on Wall Street. I the blamed Fed us. And, and I mean, I, the Fed. Dick Fold. You know, and... yeah, I didn't blame Dick Fold. I mean, look, the Fed has done what they've done, but ultimately we're the people. 
we do it. You know, we, we vote for it. We support it. Uh, I know there's, there's guys behind the curtain up here in Oz and stuff like that, but you know, ultimately we all wanted to get rich. We all had no problem getting a million dollar mortgage from WAMU in 2003 with no, uh, no docs down. So I'll never, I've told this story so many times that the first house I owned, we bought in, I want to say 2000 or 2001, not counting apartments in the city, first freestanding house in suburbia. And we had done a refi in 05. It's an absolutely true story. And this was back in the day when the bank would come to your house. Guy pulls into a driveway, flings the door open to his car, leaves the engine running, runs in with some papers, really apologetic. I'm really sorry. I have a closing on a new sale a few blocks from here. Sign, sign, initial, initial. Here's a check for $30,000. That's your cash out refi. Thank you so much. I got to go. And he... He was in and out in two minutes, and as he leaves the driveway, I say to my wife, this this is a bad thing. Some, something, like it started me looking at how insane has housing become. And I, and I had been looking at that space for a while, but that experience was so surreal compared to the most recent house we bought a year ago was the polar opposite. All right, we need a, a, a pint. <laughs> wanted your I need a pint first, of blood. second, third, fourth right. born. I need a pint of blood. We need some hair samples, a little DNA. All right, we'll be checking your stool sample every month for a year just to make sure that you can Cough. can repay this. It was it was insane. It was good column fodder, but it was absolutely insane. This go round, the last one, we looked at each other and just like, okay, let's redo the kitchen. <laughs> it was it was that simple and and that crazy. Um, what did you learn, not so much about the subject matter of finance, but what did you learn about the, um, oh, we have plenty of time. I'm afraid we're going to run out of time for our questions. What did you learn about the process of making a film? Would you ever make a film again or a television show? Are you interested in that in the least? If I don't have to finance any of it. <laughs> right. Well, that's a given. Um, if I don't have to finance any of it, and you know, I, I found in making a film, there's two types of staff. There's really the people that will come along and work their butt off and they really want to make creative magic. And then there's the other people that just want a paycheck. So there's a whole, I think it's 50% of the film world is like just kind of, you know, they know there's these budgets and they're going to get a paycheck and they're really like half. Isn't that true in everything, every endeavor? Yeah. There are people who do it for the love of the job and there are people who work for the love of the paycheck. Art's and fun. Art is fun. Art Look, is we're gonna, commerce, we're gonna, though, we're gonna, isn't we're it? Gonna, of course. We're going to die. We're all going to die. Make art. Whether it's a book, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a trading system, I don't care. Make art. You're going to die. We're all going to die. Make art. Mike Koval, uh, that that's your philosophy of life summed up in, in one sentence. It's true. Sentence. We're all going to die. Make art. But I think a lot of people don't think they're going to die, so they don't do anything. Who doesn't think they're going to die? I'm really curious about. I don't. I. I you know, I'm, I normally know. I'm I'm making these arguments as to why you have to look at the data and why you need to make sure you're fact based and logical and and don't have some glaring blind spots uh, blind um, spots that you're you're unaware of where you're making errors. But when someone's fundamental premise of life is clearly false, how do you respond to people who have no interest in that sort of stuff? I tell him there's a great video on YouTube with Christopher Hitchens, Dan Dennett, Sam Harris, 
the Rich, debate, Richard the, Dawkins, the whole the whole debate, the four horsemen. Yep. So if anybody wants to really argue with me, I say, you know what? There's four guys on YouTube that are much smarter than me, and they talk for about two hours at a roundtable. Give that a shot, and then come back to me when you're after after watching that. You probably, if you you're either going to like me or you're going to hate me, one or the other. That that's pretty pretty hilarious. Before we get to our eight favorite questions, um, what else have you been looking at, focusing on, noticing that you think is intriguing? Especially, what have you learned from your time in Asia that you wouldn't have learned if you were here in the United States? America feels old. Feels old. In what way? The demographics, the infrastructure, the the entire society. What is it about America that's old? Everything you just said. And then I think also the people. The people, and not just a physical old, but a an old... We're not belief system we're and not old philosophy. Adventurous anymore. I mean, some of us are. Some of us are. Look, you have Silicon Valley. I'm going to push back on you. I, we do have the Silicon- millennials are everywhere. They're, they're, they're everywhere, but over. I don't know what they're doing. They're, they're everywhere. They're taking over. Okay. Well, <laughs> what's that mean? The millennials <laughs> are now a bigger voting block than the baby boomers. Well, that's if voting really matters anymore. <laughs> well, you know, you get to choose uh, which one of these two groups of, course, of people. Of course, I'm. I from, it's column A or column B. You don't really get to choose. You get to choose from a pre-selected course. Sil- but that said, Silicon Valley does exceptional things. But overall, there is a feeling. If you want me to compare and contrast, please. There's this energy. There's this excitement. There's this desire. Maybe it's misplaced. Maybe it won't get where they want to go. Mm. But you can feel it. Even in a Tokyo still, and I know Tokyo is a big city and maybe the outer areas aren't doing as well, but that energy and enthusiasm and all the things that you mentioned, for example, infrastructure, when you see so many infrastructure projects getting off the ground, and I'll tell you one of my damn pet peeves, airlines, specifically the staff on an airline. In the United States, it's uniformly terrible. I'll give you three exceptions. Virgin, which is British, Mm. uh, JetBlue, which is essentially... The, the real exception in Southwest, those two are the the non um, traditional airlines. They're they're not the legacy airlines with all of the uh, union um, baggage and all of the historical baggage. Outside of those, I've found that most airline staff in the United States states not especially accommodating. No, and it's completely different. And not only do you have something uh, people might say, well, this is not really relevant. Uh, appearance is clearly an issue in Asia right. on airlines. Oh God, and have you ever fr- flown Air India? It's unbelievable. Really? And people say Singapore Airlines is supposed to be fantastic. Singapore's great. A and A, Japan, fantastic. Uh, even Vietnam Airlines, fantastic. Now, so. is it much more expensive? Are they are are the fares regulated the way they used to be in the United States? What ha- what's the difference? We haven't talked to charts today, and not that I'm a chart guy or anything, but if we look at some of those charts, and everyone can imagine what the charts look like. Just imagine what the U.S. dollar looks like on a chart, mm-hmm. and then imagine if you're straight up for nine years. If you're in other parts of the, if you're other parts of the world, that's a good thing to be. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, the strong, the strong dollar yeah. is good for for people in Asia. Is good for people elsewhere around the. Uh, it's good for Americans in Asia. That's for well, sure. if you're if you're a tourist, if you're an exporter, not so much. Yeah. In in the United States, yeah. um, and what's fascinating is if you're an exporter in China, and the yuan is 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 pegged to the dollar, the strong dollar isn't the greatest thing in the world for exports other than to the United States. Elsewhere, it makes your goods a little more expensive. 
So um, what else do you see as a change that you noticed only because you've spent so much time in Asia uh, uh, about the United States or, or anything else? So well, commerce. I mean, for example, look, in clearly the registration requirements, the ability to launch a restaurant, launch a store. Singapore is highly regulated, but in many places- Extreme, you can't even chew yeah, of gum. Course, of course, Bangkok though, and, and Hong Kong, and Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, uh, you know, places like Shanghai, you can get something started. You can find out what the demand is. And if it doesn't work, I can't tell you how many times I've passed a store in Saigon where it's like, that store looks kind of dead. I wonder how long they're going to make it, and they're gone in a month. Right. I mean, so people just try. There's this- Look, I still remember the first time three years ago, I'm walking the streets with this this young lady and I looked at her and I said, where are all communists? And she didn't get the joke because everything I saw was selling. Right. Commerce, commerce. And that's, it's not even a, the government style of Vietnam and China is communist. The people are Asian. The people are merchants. Huh. And that is, that's pure trade. And you're seeing less of that in the United States? I mean, you know, there's some nice stores out here. I see people selling high-end goods. I see the Apple store and that kind of stuff. But I don't see the ability for the average person to go jump at it really quickly. Well, not you're not going to open a storefront on Fifth Avenue if you're a one-man shop selling widgets that you make in your basement. I'm not saying this is good or bad. Let the market decide. We've gotten a little over-regulated on some of these things. I know we're trying to protect everybody. I know we're trying to make everything fair. But we all know that when it's all said and done, no one's protected and it ain't fair. See, I, I've always found that to be a little bit of a red herring only because we have um, absolutely, you know, we launched an asset management shop. It didn't take that much time, effort, or money to do. If you want to build a restaurant or open a restaurant, all these things take capital. And if you have to jump through a few regulatory hoops, it's not the worst thing in the world. Your audience listening right now that knows you've not been to Asia uh -huh. knows that when you come in 2016. I'm going to change my whole yes. attitude on that. All right, in the last 10 minutes we have, let's work through our 10 favorite questions. Uh, you already asked the first one uh, about how your background led you to finance. Let's go to the second one. Who were your early mentors? I mentioned Jim Massey at mm -hmm. Solomon Brothers because when he told me, you don't want to be the best, you just want to win, that forces you as a young man you realize, okay, I've got diarrhea of the mouth. I'm just talking. And that forces you to realize this is a game you play to win. This isn't this isn't this is no longer kumbaya, everyone gets a trophy. This is playing for keeps. And that in that instant changed me. I didn't really have much more involvement after that with him. He did get me an interview at Solomon Brothers in 1994 during the bond market massacre, which really didn't help much. But uh that was a that was a change. So did did you decide that you wanted to be the best, or did you just decide that you wanted to win? Don't best is some nebulous who knows what best means. That doesn't mean anything, right? You want to win. However, you're going to measure winning. At least you got to be able to measure it in some way. Huh. Kind of interesting. And Bill, um, Bill Dunn too. Bill Dunn, the trader that I mentioned with the 40 year track record, seeing him in person, and I remember this is South Florida. Yeah, South Florida, and. It was a crazy, a crazy small world story where my baseball coach when I was 16 ended up, and today he's the president of Dunn Capital. I don't know how that even happened. Wow, exactly. that's insane. Crazy small world story. But when he got me a, an informational interview with Bill Dunn in 1996, I remember he 
Bill Dunn called me up on the phone. I, he knew I was coming down. And he said, so do you want to come down here and press me? And I remember being a little bit scared because I knew I was talking to a guy worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He was managing billions. But I saw it within him, too, was, again, that Jim Massey, that attitude that I, I'm, you know, just this a tough attitude. He's a former Marine, former Marine physicist. But that those things instilled in me, even if it wasn't my personality to show those to other people deep in my gut, deep in my mind, I knew those were changing me. Huh. That's quite fascinating. Next question. Um, so you you mentioned a couple of mentors. What other investors influenced your approach to investing? Obviously, Richard Dennis, a key guy. Who else influenced the way you think about deploying capital at risk? You know, there's a whole team of people that we've talked about today, but I'll bring up somebody that I've mentioned briefly, which is David Harding of Winden Capital. Mm -hmm. And David is probably considered today the most successful trend-following trader. His fund is around $30 billion today. Wow. In 1997, it was $5 million, I believe. So he took $5 million up to $30 billion, or some of this is obviously well, of new. Of course, inflows. But but still, it's a, it's a tremendous success. It, he you know had one stretch of 20 years, uh, over 20% uh, after fees. And the first time I met him, I was in his office in London. And to watch his competitiveness struck me because he wanted to talk about Jim Simons. And I didn't say, I don't know much. 40% a year for I said, years. I don't know much about Jim Simons right now. I don't, He's I really, my white whale. I have Dalio uh, and Jim Simons. I, don't, I said, I don't, have any, I don't have any experience with him. And, you know, Harding was making the case that for somebody to do as well as Simons had did and has done, that there had to be a trend-following component. Now, what's interesting, if you listen- I don't know if that's true with Simons. If you listen to Simons, though, Everything he says publicly, and I've listened to almost everything he said publicly, there's not much, sounds like a trend-following trader if and until and when some type of subject on the short term comes up. So I just thought it was an interesting conversation, one of my first conversations with David Harding, that as a, a man who was very firmly in the asset management space, the competitiveness that which he had to look at his peers- so that, that affected me too. Just to, it, it shows you behind the curtain. You know how these guys are thinking. You know how the best in the world are thinking. And whether or not you use that experience or not, you now know how the game is played, that, really. That's fascinating. It, it, I look at Simon's as such a different approach than trend following. I, I'm surprised to hear a successful trend follower sort of, of you know, that, that becomes his Moby Dick at that point. Okay, but here's, so here's the thing. Do you, does anybody really know exactly what Renaissance does? We know some of it. We know that there's a lot of, they were an early adopter of high-frequency trading, that he essentially was hiring mathematicians and physicists 20 years ago. A lot of trade-following traders have hired those kinds of people. But he was never hiring people from Wall Street. Everything he built was strictly from, and my contact with him is when I started at Stony Brook as an undergrad, I was applied physics and uh, applied mathematics and physics major. He was the outgoing chairman of the math department. And by the way, if you would have met him in 1979 when I started college, you would have said, "Wait, that chain smoking bearded guy? I'm not going to give him two cents. He, you would never in a million years yeah. think this is going to the guy that's going to amass a 40 year 
on near 40% annual track record. It's it's insane. You One, know they're real because they return after a few years, return the outside investors' money and said, we're good, we're going to just use One of the things cash. that really triggered me early on, and I'm, I'm just thinking about Simons and his track record, with trend-following traders being regulated by the CFTC, the NFA, you could always do a FOIA request and mm -hmm. get their disclosure documents. So for me, early but on- But do they really reveal a whole lot in their FOIA documents? What What is- Sure, their monthly performance. Oh, so you're actually getting those numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, wow, I mean, if you can look at- I mean, I, that's that was the foundation for all of my books. I couldn't write about trend following unless I had the performance that said, okay, look, look at the correlation between Bill Dunn, John Henry, David Harding, the Turtles, Larry Height, and when you start to look at the correlation performance, and you're like, oh, all these different people, different walks of life, different training, unaffiliated, are making money in the same months and losing money in the same months. They're obviously doing something. And then very you can then you can look at the markets and you can realize, oh yeah, crew just moved big that month, and you know what's going on. Huh. That's that's interesting. Outside of your own books, what are some of your favorite books written by other people? I love Blue Ocean Strategy. Blue Ocean Strategy. Yeah, you know that one, I think. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, it's just, it, you know, to sum it up, it's uh, steering clear of, I mean, look, we're, we're in this facility right now where everyone is seeing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So how do how does one go ahead and find a different place to be? I mean, that sums up Blue Ocean Strategy. And I know one that you would hate for me to say. Go ahead. But I tell you, I do love it. I still love the 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 energy and the thought process, the thinking of the main character in The Fountainhead. It's not that I, I hate Ayn Rand. I just found her to be pedantic and boring. I mean- Oh yeah, of course, Atlas Shrugged. You got oh to say, there's a 60-page speech. There's a 60-page speech. So it's not, listen, she comes from the Soviet Union. What a shocker. She's against totalitarianism and and champions the the- uh, genius of of the individual. Uh, that's not a surprise, but it shouldn't take eighteen hundred pages. That's the the old joke is. I apologize for the length of this letter. I didn't have time to make it shorter. She never learned that. Seth Godin's Lynchpin, mm -hmm. a simple book. The first thirty pages. If you if you know a young person or anybody that's confused about their career, what they want to do in life, he's one of these guys that basically says, you know what. You've got all the tools you need. You've got the internet. Go make some art. Go do something. Chris Venn, who's the head of planning in my office, is an absolute Godin acolyte. Loves him. Yeah, it's great stuff. Great huh. stuff. The Lynchpin is the name of the book. Lynchpin. And, I'll and if you Google Google my name, I know I've got a couple recommended book lists out there if you just type in my name. and Give me one me. more. One more book that you are, are really intrigued by. I like the Dan Airely stuff. I like the thinking predictably irrational. I like the thinking fast, thinking slow. Kahneman. Uh, that, uh, by the way, I like the Michael. The first three quarters of that book is is fantastic. The Michael Mobison, more than you know. Mm -hmm. um, Doug Emlin's Animal Weapons, which I've mentioned. Yeah, um, Animal Weapons is is a really fa interesting concept. I have to put that in my queue. Yeah, it's he it was started with a study of dung beetles. Uh, just really uh, uh, fascinating stuff. I don't know, you know these things. The list goes on forever. Uh, the, what do you think of the old stuff that I really like? Ah, one of my favorite authors. I think it's called The Wisdom of Insecurity by Alan Watts, huh. who introduced uh, Buddhism and Zen to the uh, to the Western world back in the 50s. And in fact, if you Google Alan Watts, uh, go to YouTube, 
much of the stuff that he has on YouTube is just absolutely fabulous. Just calm you down. Because look, look, if you're going to be a trader, you're going to be an investor. If there's any one type of thinking that's just really nice for trading and investing is a Zen mindset. To say the least. It's great. So let's let's continue on our Zen list. So since you started writing about trading and writing about trend following, what major changes has hit uh, the futures industry? All these blowups, right? Mm -hmm. All these sort of blowups. Those don't help confidence. So I think that's 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 the biggest thing. And I think also, for example, in the trend following space, if you look at the last since the biggest, I mean, 2014 was a pretty good year because of the oil moved down. But if you look at uh, 2008 was the last really fantastic year and then a lot of kind of ups and downs. Look, as a trend following trader, you can't control these ups and downs. So I think what's going to be interesting to see as we watch interest rates change, as we watch, you know, will we have another 10 years of equity markets just marching up? I don't know. Who knows? Who you knows? Could. You could. And- if that and that would be good. Any of these things in a trend would be good for the Absolutely. trend followers. You've got it. You've got it. It depends, though. If you've got a diversified portfolio, mm -hmm. you've got to take positions in some markets that might be going different than equities. You might get stopped out. So you you, know, you can't just be a trend following trader on one market. Which, if you wanted to sum up, one of the issues that we talked about too was the death cross. Uh huh. The whole death cross. I agree with your analysis on it. I think the thing that Jerry Parker, one of the turtles, was saying was yes, but the death cross can be the initial signal for a trend that might develop. It's not a forecast. That never works. And I agree with your analysis on that. Yeah, well, we want, you know, it's one of these things you hear about over and over again. And then you go out and look at the numbers and what's the subsequent track record of this? Turns out it's terrible. But 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 if you if you had a death cross and a diversified portfolio and it was your signal for entry with a stop loss, uh -huh. that's different than all the technical wonks out there that I say, gotcha. oh, here's the death cross. This means six months from now, this is going to happen. That's all. Right. That's last, nonsense. Last two questions, hmm. and these are my two favorites. What advice would you give to a millennial or someone who just got out of college who was interested in a career in finance? You got to do it yourself. Got to do it yourself. Yeah, no safe spaces and do it yourself. And now our final question, because I see they're ready to kick the door down. Do it yourself in the sense of like, don't try and get hired by anybody. That's over. I think that's over. You're a free agent. You're Learn, a free agent. Develop Go, an expertise. Do, do it. Yeah. Why? 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 Do you really want to? I mean, do you really want to spend your life working for someone else? No, you don't. Look at you. I can see those eyes right now. <laughs> you want no part of it. And our final question, what is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew 20 years or so when you began? The psychology part of it. Mm-hmm. Expand on that. Well, the rules have not necessarily changed that much. People might argue that the rules have changed, but they really haven't changed. It's understanding the human condition because it really calms you down. You realize, hey, look, there's a lot of luck in this world. Things are random. You know, I, I think anybody can go out and figure out a way to make their first million dollars. But, you know, it's a little luck sometimes if you're going to make a billion. So don't kill yourself trying to think you're going to make a billion. You're probably not going to be Zuckerberg. To, to say the least. Mike, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, for those people who want to learn more about Mike Koval, just go to trendfollowing.com or on Twitter at trendfollowing. It'll get to me. It'll get to him. Uh, I want to thank my producer, Charlie Vollmer, our head of research, Michael Batnick. 
I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.